0: We'll hear argument next in case 07474, Enquist versus Oregon Department of Agriculture. Mr. Katiel.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The Ninth Circuit held that no discrimination against a public employee is prohibited by the Equal Protection Clause unless the targeted person is a member of a suspect class or exercises a fundamental right. No matter how outrageous or evil and no matter how unrelated to any legitimate government interest, the clause provides zero protection. This theory is contrary to the Constitution's text. It is inconsistent with this Court's precedents. It is unworkable and it is unnecessary. The Ninth Circuit ignored the Equal Protection Clause's guarantee to any person that the State will not use its vast powers to discriminate without a legitimate government purpose and particularly not in ways that lead to inefficient government. This Court has articulated three principles that control this case. First, the Constitution protects the individual from irrational discrimination. Second, the Fourteenth Amendment applies to public employers, and rational basis review applies to public employment. And third, the clause applies to the administrative actions of state officials, not just legislatures. Well,
2: rational basis review normally doesn't uh, inquire into the, uh, the actual motive, uh, for example, of the state legislators who impose such a tax or impose such a restriction. We, we simply ask could there have been a rational basis for this? Now, are, are, are you willing to abide by that test?
1: We are, Your Honor. The Ninth Circuit below said no rational basis test ever, and indeed the trial in this case allowed the government to articulate any rationale, conceivable or not. We do think, even though it doesn't make...
2: Listen to what I'm saying. Not, not whether you could decide that given all of the facts of this case... The criticism of the uh, co-workers and all of that whether it is conceivable to say that this was done on a rational basis that that isn't the rational basis test it's just sitting back without these factual inquiries just as we don't inquire factually into why the state legislature acted just asking could there have been a rational basis for the dismissal of this employee
1: your honor we do agree that that last part justice scalia looking at could there have been a rational basis yeah. is the proper test, but that is a factual determination at some level. That is, this Court in Kimmel and a variety of other cases have said that you still have to look to the underlying facts, and even the Solicitor General doesn't disagree at page five of their brief when they say you have to look to whether the, whatever that rationale is is supported by the record. The government had the opportunity so what to
0: you do in this case, I mean, the person is fired. And that's all you know. And so you go back and see, well, is there any possible reason? So you look at the timesheets, and, oh, here are a few days where she punched in late. That's a possible reason, and that's enough.
1: Well, we do think that that can be enough, and, indeed, that's what the government had their opportunity to argue in this case. The Ninth Circuit, of course, cut thought even that very deferential inquiry off altogether. Now — And so in that case,
0: and then let's say you're at trial, and you ask him, did you fire this person because she — punched in late a few times. I take it the objection would be that that's irrelevant, and that would be sustained.
1: Well, if it is a counterfactual, I mean, it, the, the plaintiff would have the opportunity to negate the facts on whatever that rational no, no, no,
0: the records show she was a few times she punched in late.
1: And if it has anything to do with government efficiency, the rational basis test is that differ- deferential to permit that to go forward. What
3: about he didn't like it? I, I didn't like I'm the supervisor. I didn't like it.
1: And even that, Justice Breyer, is enough so long as it's related to government efficiency. That is. Well, all right. Now make... you say
3: related to. Go- if the truth is, I don't like this person. Goodbye. Now, is that rational? When you say, I mean, we, you know as much about the case now as I do. But not this case, but you know, that's all we know. Is that rational or that
1: not? That by itself is not because it doesn't have any. Now that seems to
3: me to be the problem. That either, going back to Justice Scalia's uh, point you're either going to say rational in these circumstances, which means you go into it whether the timesheet was this or whether it was that or the other, or you say, hey, it's always rational because you could have fired him because you do not like the person. That, that's, and I don't see some intermediate step there to put the question differently. Every government has a, a state and federal has an Administrative Procedures Act. That forbids unreasonable, arbitrary action. But why do they need that if the Constitution does it by itself?
1: Okay. Let me, let me say two things first, because there are two different questions there. One has to do with the, uh, with the state laws and so on. And this Court has never said that the existence of other state remedies somehow displaces the Equal Protection Clause or other constitutional guarantees. What about on the federal level? Could a federal
4: employee who says just what was alleged here, Come right into court and bring a Bibbins action and says I, I was discriminated against um, and similarly situated people were not and it was irrational could a- federal employee come to court with such a complaint?
1: The answer is no, Justice Ginsburg, and the reason is at footnote 18 of our brief, and I believe the Solicitor General doesn't disagree in large amount, that is that for Bivens the question is, is there, will the Court imply a right of action as opposed to the issue in this case, which is Section 1983, there is a statutory right of action already in existence. And it doesn't
4: doesn't matter that the State has civil service remedies that weren't used, or there are union grievance procedures that aren't used. You can go right into Federal Court and say, I don't have to use those State remedies.
1: that, That is correct. It doesn't, the existence of those State remedies does not, displace or by itself without a statute, without uh, Congress coming in and, and mandating exhaustion or something like that. But in the absence of that, this Court has not said, outside of the limited area procedural due process, that the existence of either collective bargaining agreements or State laws somehow Displaces a federal constitutional guarantee. Now, if I can return to the first part of Justice Breyer's question, which was the dividing line in uh, in whether there's a clear standard. Let me articulate this as as, as one. We believe that when a when the, a government employer comes in and asserts some sort of objective uh, reality, um, you know, so for here they said the wheat prices are declining. The plaintiff should have a chance to negate that and say, uh, well, it turned out that actually the wheat prices weren't declining and so on. Uh, if, however, the, plaintiff, the government articulates the rationale that you had put forth before, I don't like you and somehow it's, the supervisor says it's interfering with my government efficiency and I can't do the job. Well, that's something that the employer will never really be able to negate. The employee will never be able to negate. And that is set forth at our reply brief at page 16. Well, I, I guess
5: you, you begin with the proposition that the government must always have a reason for what it does.
1: The government must always have a reason when it discriminates against individuals. Well, that but is the
6: way. discrimination, when you say discrimination, I take it you're meaning discrimination not confined to the discrete categories of racial age etc you're talking about discrimination for any purpose and therefore it seems to me that when you say the government cannot discriminate i think in effect you're saying uh, a a government supervisor cannot fire somebody simply because he does not like that person because that's a discrimination uh, in relation to the people that the supervisor does like, is that correct? That
1: that, that is correct. Then as if, long if as as long as Justice Souter, it is not related to government efficiency. That is, if it's like this case, right? In which
6: it, it's not government efficiency. Exactly. I just don't want to be around this person. Exactly. Then okay. then it it is the case then that if you prevail in this case, that the notion of paradigmatic at will employment. Within the government in, in in any state that recognizes that now, that will in fact uh, be eliminated to to the degree that there is a a, a class of one cause of action.
1: To, to the contrary, Justice Souter, I don't think that will happen, and indeed has not happened, and in, there's not. Well, any I thought of, you just agreed
6: that it it would happen in the hypothetical because as I, and maybe I do not understand at will employment, but I thought the concept of at will employment was that the individual could be fired for a good reason, a bad reason, or no reason at all. Somewhere in that trinity, we get Justice Breyer's hypothetical. I don't like him. Uh, and, And you're saying that won't pass muster but it would pass muster uh, under an at-will employment rule.
1: Justice Hutter, as a practical matter, it won't matter. It, as a practical matter, it won't make a difference. And the reason is that because an employer can articulate, I don't like you, and it's undermining government efficiency, in most cases, particularly in at-will cases, where there isn't a collective bargaining agreement or state law that will constrain the ability of the employer to even articulate some sort of efficiency.
2: No, 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 no. I'm not behavior. working with this person. It's not going to affect my efficiency efficiency. He's under somebody below me, but I just don't like him.
1: And if there isn't an efficiency in the state, right. can't articulate a deficiency-based right. rationale, there will be some effect on at-will no. employment in those rare okay. cases. So, okay. that, that is, now, take so you have a
5: national four-cause employment system. You can only be hired for cause, fired for cause.
1: Well, except that the cause that uh, that the equal protection mandates, the equal protection clause is guarantee, is so deferential that, as Justice Breyer said, virtually any rationale will suffice if it is. But you're really getting perfectly. back
5: to the point: the government must always have a reason for what it does. Can you cite me a case that says that?
1: That the government must always have, must a, re- always
5: have a reason for the actions it takes.
1: Well, I read this court's decision in OLEC is basically mandating that, as well as its, you know, as well as its long history on a class of one, starting with Sioux City, in uh, Sunday Lake, and Snowden versus. Yes,
5: th- those are all tax cases. Or in Olick 30 feet as opposed to 15 feet. Uh, where there was a clear difference that was not sustained, but there was also an allegation of a, some in, invidious motive.
1: Uh-huh. And, and here, of course, the uh, jury you found that? that invidious motive. So even if we were to we, — It's court were, hard for
5: me to get that sweeping proposition out of Oleg. Mm-hmm.
1: If, if the Court were worried about at-will employment, it has available to it the possibility of requiring animus just as uh, Justice Kennedy or positive. Well, what happens in this the
7: situation? The government — uh, gives a reason for whatever the adverse action is. Somebody, they give, and let's say it's a person who had lower performance ratings than another person who was retained or given the promotion. Your position is the employee can always contest that and say that's not the real reason, that's not factually supported. Is that correct?
1: If, uh, if the government articulates a rationale that is objectively based, budget or something like that, yes, the plaintiff can come back and try and rebut it. Now, it does so under the extremely deferential rational basis test, which is why so few causes get through. And indeed,
7: How is it extremely deferential? The employee is going to say that's not the real reason. The real reason was simply spite and animus and personal dislike. Because if the government can put, and that court, goes to the jury.
1: It, I don't believe it goes to the jury, Justice Alito, because under this court's decision in Anderson versus Liberty Lobby, the summary judgment stage will incorporate whatever the rational basis test of review is. And, and the employee, employee says,
7: I'll go from finishing. "The employee says in in an affidavit, uh, the supervisor doesn't like me, and here are." the 20 things that the supervisor has, de- has done and said over the course of the last five years to indicate personal dislike, then, then it goes to the jury.
1: Uh, again, as long as the employer can articulate a reason based on government efficiency, there is no way for that employee to rebut that.
0: But he's going to have to articulate it in Federal Court. You emphasize it's a deferential standard. It's not going to be that, But every case now, every case of an employee firing, in fact, every case of an employee not getting as big a raise as he thought he was entitled, that's now a Federal case.
1: Well, there are two problems with that. First is, those are already Federal cases under existing laws, Title VII, the panoply of other laws. Well, to
0: Title VII, there's no, you know, it's because you don't like me. It's not because I'm a particular race. But,
1: but if we're positing a frequent filer plaintiff who's bent on trying to uh, file a lawsuit, they can always make a title set and they can say, You're firing me because. Of I'm not worried
0: about a frequent filer. I'm worried about 40 million single filers. Uh-huh.
1: And and the the empirical evidence, Chief Justice, Mr. Chief Justice, is that that doesn't happen. And, you know, we've had this cause of action now for 26 and 27 years in two circuits. It's now the law of the land in nine circuits. We haven't had that entire flood, nor have we had the harm to at-will employment. And the reason is that plaintiffs aren't going to bring these causes of action when they know they're so hard to win. I
3: don't know. That's that's why I started this. I read through at least briefly, the circuit cases in this area. I was trying to figure it out, and, and it seemed to me that those circuit cases just really are finding some reason to dismiss the employee's claim, that they're not taking this seriously, that that, that it — I mean, I don't want to criticize them because I don't know the facts of the case, but I couldn't figure out a standard, and then I thought, well, the standard has to be the APA standard, and if it's — I know that standard. And the reason that you don't have a million cases under that standard is because states have civil service systems. It seems to me that's the standard you want to apply. You want to bring all those cases into federal court. And I'm not sure they're doing it now, really, in practice. Now, what's wrong with what I've just said?
1: Uh, Well, I don't think there's anything quite wrong with that. I'd say two things. One, the existence of all of those state remedies and so on are far more attractive for the employment plaintiff than this cause of action. And so that's one reason why you see these low numbers. Second is I I don't quite agree with you that the lower courts are, you know, maybe not taking it seriously or or however. They have a long established body of law now on how to dismiss these cases on 12B6 motions, and the majority of the circuits have already held that because of the similarly situated requirement and intentionality requirements, as well as on summary judgment. That is because the test is so definite. Well, but let,
4: let's take this case. So you say there were 30 similarly situated people with regard to um, this employee being uh, let go. Wouldn't that be a, a contested matter? The employer will say they're not similarly situated. Each of them is differently situated. How does that get resolved on summary judgment?
1: Well, normally, uh, it depends on the rationale that's being offered. Here, the government's rationale was declining wheat revenues. And so each of the employees who was paid out of those wheat revenues, assembly situated. The government in this case disclaimed the other rationales, performance and so on. In the ordinary case, I thought they withdrew from saying
4: that it it was a budgetary matter.
1: uh, Well, there are two different budgetary issues. One was the budget having to do with the Oregon State budget. Uh, And that was ultimately withdrawn by the State. The other was that Ms. Enquist and 10 other or so employees were being paid out of wheat revenues. And the State's rationale at trial was that the wheat market was collapsing. And so they couldn't pay for Ms. Enquist anymore. And she was, of course. Suppose
2: the government government comes in and says, um, uh, we don't want to take a position as as to what the reason was. It could have been any one of the following seven. You know, the wheat market collapsed. She came in late five days. Uh, some of the jobs she did, she didn't do well. She dressed inappropriately on the job. Her coworkers didn't like her. You know, and and, and can the government do that?
1: Uh, the government can or does offer it have those to pick as a reason.
2: Does it have to pick a reason? You're, Absolutely you're, not. It can
1: pick so the many reasons. As long as there's
2: reasons. a conceivable reason the Court would grant summary judgment.
1: We we think that's right. Now, there are — I thought you did
4: not agree with that in your brief. I thought you took on — You said no hypothetical justification. It's not like legislation where any conceivable basis, even if the legislature didn't (coughs) conceive it. I thought you were quite clear in saying, no, that's not what rational basis means in this context. I I
1: might have misunderstood Justice Scalia's question. I thought he was saying, does the — can the government put forth a conceivable rationale grounded in some fact — And the answer to that is yes. It's got to be grounded in fact, that is the test. Well,
2: all those facts are true facts, but the government isn't claiming that any one of them was the reason. It just says, here are the conceivable reasons why why she might have been fired. We we really don't know which one it was, but here are seven perfectly conceivable reasons.
1: The government has the ability to put that forth, and the plaintiff has the ability to negate that. That is the rational basis test under this court's What do you mean to
2: negate it? To negate it as the actual reason is what you mean.
1: To negate the But
2: the government is not purporting uh, to to say that it's the actual reason. The government is saying, had she been dismissed for this reason, and we really don't know whether that was the reason or not, But had she been dismissed for this reason, it would have been rational.
1: So long as Justice Scalia, that rationale is itself grounded in the facts. That is, you can't come in and say she wasn't. She was coming to work late when she wasn't. But if she were, Uh, then well, I I didn't
2: understand your position to be that. that.
1: Again, the test here is the test I'm trying to offer is one of objective objective whether the rationale is objectively falsifiable. I ask you
0: more, uh, perhaps a more abstract question about this class of one. Doesn't that have the effect of adding an equal protection claim to every violation of law? In other words, you have a Fourth Amendment search and seizure claim, and you're treated illegally. You say, well, everybody else was treated legally, and I wasn't, so it's an equal protection violation. You get, um, you know, the zoning ordinance. Uh, It was improper under the zoning law. Because everybody else was properly treated, it's a violation of equal protection.
1: Right. Um, that is a problem, I think, under this court's decision in OLIC Generally, it infects class of one. Do you think OLIC
5: was wrongly decided?
1: I, I do not. I think that this court has had a long history on. But OLEC but I don't OLEC find
5: anything it. in Ollic that says that every action that does not have a reason. Uh, is constitutionally infirm.
1: Let me go back to Justice Kennedy to answer your question more directly. Uh, this court has held in the employment case, in the employment context, that the government must have a rational basis. It said so in Hera v. Martin, Beezer, and Mergia, all of which say that when an employer is uh, dismissing employees, it must act with a rational basis. So this all court's those, already crossed that. All of
4: that those control. involved a group characteristics. One involved people, these uh, was, wasn't it, methadone users, but none of them uh, involved a situation like this where she's not claiming anything about being a member of any identifiable class. She's just saying they discriminated against me, uh, not because of sex, race, or anything else.
1: <coughs> they, they were out to get me. JUSTICE GINSBURG, I don't quite think that describes the facts of Harrah versus Martin, in which it was a challenge to an individual termination decision by the School Board. But I do agree the other cases are group-based characteristics. We don't think that makes a difference. And indeed, we think that the Solicitor General's test on this would be unworkable in practice, because everyone can assert their membership in some objective No, group. but you
3: could, you could take that. In- I thought you could break the cases for the most part, into two parts. One, what Justice Ginsburg said, and that's where the real reason is, a, is some kind of general characteristic of a disfavored group. The second is the instance where the, where the body that's acting is a body whose business is, is to classify. That's zoning, taxation, and it means really classifying, in fact, not some theoretical thing where you say Oh well, they're classifying in employment because you put you in the class of such and such. But those two seem to me to handle the bulk of the cases which, if I'm right about that, would leave your client out in the cold. So I assume you'll tell me why I'm not right.
1: I will try. So the first thing is, is that, uh, that I don't quite think that describes the facts of Harris versus Martin, which is an individual decision. And secondly, once you start going down the line of objective group-based uh, characteristics the like, it is infinitely ma- manipulable. And that's why the Ninth Circuit decisions after, in the wake of this decision below, are dismissing group-based claims on uh, on, on, uh, on uh, disability and age and the like. Everyone can replead their claim as part of a group. That is, Ms., uh, you know, Ms. Enquist can say she's part of a group of two, those who complained about their supervisors and up the chain of command. And so the problem is it becomes unworkable in practice. And, of course, the Constitution, uh, Justice Ginsburg, doesn't say the way the Solicitor General like, would like it to be, doesn't say no state shall deny equal protection of the law to anyone who is a member of an objective group-based, uh, you know, me- group-based class. you brought up
4: uh, — you said this is in 1983. It's, it's a clause of action provided by Congress, so that's why — This is something state and municipal employees can do, but no federal employee could do. 1985 also uses the word person or class of persons, and yet this Court held that 1985-3, that claim, it has to be some group-based animus, not malice directed toward a particular individual.
1: I don't quite think that uh, — I think the Court has already dealt with that in OLIC uh, by affirming, essentially, a 1983 cause of action based on an individual person's claim. And so uh, uh, and so that is the relevant precedent here, not the Section 1985 precedent. Now, if we — Well, it, maybe
4: because 1985-3 is in a discrimination context um, — the court could say 1983, we know the classifications to which Justice Breyer was referring uh, tax classifications, zoning classifications. But this group of claims we're, we're cutting out.
1: But the statutory test just, it's text, Justice Ginsburg, is the same. It's, there's one section 19. But it's a,
4: it's, a, it's a general statute. It's not a precise statute like Title VII uh, or the Age Discrimination Act. So it's the kind of legislation that seems much more amenable to court interpretation. Uh,
1: I would agree with that. I think it might open a whole can of worms were the Court to say that 1983 requires some group-based discrimination uh, outside of this particular context that we're talking about. And so I think — Well, it certainly opens the can of worms to say that you take every
4: claim against the government — every claim of wrongdoing by the government and make it an equal protection claim because you say other people were treated properly, and I was treated improperly. Therefore, I have an equal protection claim.
1: Except, Justice Ginsburg, we've had this cause of action now for 26 and 27 years in two circuits. We have it in nine. We haven't seen the effect on that. Will employment, nor more generally, on the equal protection clause opening up that can of worms that you're uh, hypothesizing? I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Thank you. Thank you,
0: Mr. Cockfield. Uh, Ms. Metcalf?
8: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, The Ninth Circuit decision in this case is consistent with this Court's recognition in other constitutional contexts. The Federal Court is simply not the forum in which to second-guess everyday decisions made by public employers. It's also consistent with this Court's recognition, again, in other constitutional contexts, that the rights of public employees simply are not as expansive in a number of ways as those of citizens generally vis-a-vis their public employers. We think that both of those lines of cases come at least in part out of the recognition that public employment decisions and indeed employment decisions generally are highly subjective in nature and highly individualistic in nature. And we think really that the Ninth Circuit here has gone no farther than to apply those, those concepts in the specific context of class-of-one cases brought in the public employment context. Ninth Circuit
4: decision would rule out the case where an employee says, I was the most qualified person for this position by far, but the supervisor took a bribe from a rich uncle to promote somebody else. Yes. That would be out. That's,
8: that would be out as an equal protection claim. There undoubtedly would be other avenues. Potential other avenues of the, the
4: scapegoat case, too, would be out.
8: Yes. Yes, it would. It would under this rationale. Why what, but that. we have
2: said that, uh, that, uh, that there is a constitutional claim uh, if the reason the person was not hired is that the person did not belong to the political party that the, uh, uh, that the hiring person belonged to the current administration and, and said you can't turn down somebody uh, just because uh, she's a Democrat or a Republican.
8: That's correct. And, and our formulation, I think, of the, of the test, Your Honor, is that there should be so no, no such thing as a class of one equal protection claim in the public employment context, with certain exceptions, those exceptions including, for example, exercise of a fundamental right, membership in a suspect class, perhaps certain other other criteria, such as, as the one you mentioned, certain other classifications. But that is a, as a general matter, the broad question that the Ninth Circuit faced is there, outside of, of those exceptions, is there such a thing as a class of one public employment? May um, I
9: ask, following up on Justice Ginsburg's question, <coughs> suppose it's not a class of one, but it's a class of two or three, because on two or three occasions they fired somebody because he wouldn't uh, pay the supervisor a bribe. Would that Across the threshold? He had a practice of not you know, take, getting a little money out of every promotion.
8: No, uh, no, Justice Stevens. And, and again, to, to be clear, and one so reason it's not I think that's thing. You, you,
9: you say no or yes to whether there would be a cause of
8: action. There were, no, because, and this is why I keep using quotes for class of one, class of one doesn't literally describe the number of plaintiffs, both because in some cases there might be a single plaintiff, but they're alleging discrimination based on membership in a class, and because in OLEC is an example, as the Court pointed out in a footnote in Olek, OLEC could have been described as a class of five. But again, we're talking about discrimination allegedly based on something other than the exceptions that this Court has recognized, exercise of a fundamental right, membership in a — Well, but as your
0: friend points out, the, the constitutional provision says any person. It doesn't say any person who's a member of a particular class or any person who's exercising a fundamental right. It's, it's any person.
8: Admittedly, Chief Justice Roberts, and, and I certainly don't think the constitutional text does us any affirmative good. But I don't think it goes as far as Petitioner would have Do it. Do you go. think
5: OLIC was correctly decided?
8: Yes. Yes, we take, and, we take no and, issue with OLIC.
5: And public employment is different just because it's going to be a big problem? What?
8: Not, not because it's going to be a big problem, but because the regulatory context is significantly different, we think, than the employment context. Part of that is the inherently subjective nature of employment decisions, regulatory decisions are made at arm's length, they're made under Well, but, but
5: we're presuming that uh, there is an objective reason the, the, for uh, promoting or, 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 or retaining the person has a college degree and so forth, but that that person is rejected anyway because of dislike. But, that,
8: but again that, That's
5: the hypothetical. Why is that hypothetical case different than Oled?
8: You might have an unusual employment case in which an employer had drawn up a, a list of objective criteria. Um, that's that's not this case. That's not the average case. In the average case, you might, for example, prefer that someone have a degree. Wh- 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 but then,
5: then we say that there is a, a subset of unusual cases where we will allow the cause of action.
8: No, we we offer the subjective nature as a general reason why simply class of one. Um, analysis should not apply in this context, period, because the average, whereas the average in the regulatory context probably is a high degree of objectivity, the average in the employment context is a relatively high degree of subjectivity and discretion.
7: But there are areas outside of employment where there's a lot of discretion. Suppose someone- claims that he's repeatedly gotten speeding tickets for going five miles over the speed limit by a local police department because of some sort of personal feud with the chief of police. That, I take it, would be a valid claim under Olick because it's outside of employment.
8: Because, because it's it's regulatory and enforcing law enforcement?
5: i I think so. I'm having trouble hearing both the question and the answer. As
8: I, as I understand, I don't know if you want me to try to restate the question or if you want to do it?
5: Well, well, the question was,
7: don't you run into the same problem of discretion outside of the employment context? For example, a police officer who is alleged to have given someone a ticket or a number of tickets simply because of, uh, of personal malice as opposed to uh, some sort of uniform policy?
8: But, But again, there I think the hopefully — hopefully, The the norm in in law enforcement is a relatively objective standard. Are you, in fact, speeding? Um, Are you, in fact, breaking the traffic laws? Are you, in fact, breaking the law in some other way? Whereas the norm in employment decisions is a much more discretionary, subjective kind of decision. Yes, I may have certain criteria that I would prefer a manager have. But then I'm still going to have to weigh the qualifications and experience of various candidates and ultimately make a relatively subjective decision about who I think is is the best candidate for that that job, which is why we think the regulatory context and the employment context are significantly different.
9: Yes, but those are all considerations that would be an adequate defense to a claim. If you had a judgment call to make, you say I had a judgment call to make. Maybe there are good arguments on the other side, but you, you can't get be liable for that kind of decision.
8: Well, and, and certainly, I'm I'm somewhat perhaps surprised by Petitioner's argument today, because I understand Petitioner's argument to almost concede the point that summary judgment should have been uh, given to the, to the State defendants in this case, because, in fact, with regard to each of the three employment decisions that are at issue in this case. The State and the defendants did properly. We're concerned
5: about the case, let's just assume, just take it as a hypothetical case, where there is an arbitrary and vindictive reason for hiring the employee, and it has nothing to do with race, sex, or other recognized suspect or or improper categories. And I thought your answer to me was, well, I might make an exception in that
8: case. No, my answer to you is as long as. Well, my answer to you is is twofold. If we're simply considering whether, in fact, there can be such a thing as a class of one um, case in the employment context, our answer is no. If we're past that and and the issue was what's the test to apply, our test is as long as there's any conceivable rational basis for the action that the government employer took, the case should be at an end. It should not go to the jury.
0: Well, isn't that an odd system? I mean, you have, like, like our time card example, you're going to have litigation over whether she was late for work or was not late for work, and, in fact, that's got nothing to do with the reason she was fired at all. And yet the government puts it up, well, this is a conceivable reason, and then the other side says, no, it's not, and they fight it. It just seems so otherworldly. It has nothing to do with the reason at all.
8: Well, that but- Often, often the real reason—and this, this court has made this observation in particular in legislative context—but often the real reason is not necessarily apparent or, or undisputed. And beyond that, that's simply the test that this court has employed as a general matter in, in rational basis equal protection cases.
0: Well, but that's with respect to legislative or regulatory action, where there are, there are important reasons not to inquire into the motives of the legislators. It's not clear to me that that same rationale applies here
8: well well, two points your honor i would certainly agree that the court has most often if if not always said that in the in the legislative context but petitioner is is not really arguing for a different test here As, as i understand petitioner's argument and perhaps i i misunderstand it but petitioner's argument is that this court should apply customary rational basis analysis and applying such analysis as long as the
4: government has some conceivable rational basis that's not you you know that that's not the position they took in the, their brief they said it's not a hypothetical any conceivable they said that by qualifying the even even in the at will category government has to articulate uh, a reason rooted in the facts of this case not a hypothetical hypothetical reason is not good enough.
8: Agree, Justice Ginsburg. Um, If we don't agree that that would be the test, we think that the Court should stick to the customary rational basis test that it's applied in other contexts and say that if there is any conceivable rational basis.
5: But even if you were to... It seems to me that you want us to write an opinion that say there are some instances where the government can act arbitrarily and unreasonably.
8: We would ask you to write an opinion, Justice Kennedy, that says that within the public employment context there are no class of one equal protection claims.
3: Well, you, you think the answer is yes. I mean, because the yes. Administrative Procedures Act
8: is arbitrary, probably...
3: capricious action. So you're saying the Constitution yes. does not constitutionalize all arbitrary, yes. capricious behavior yes. of, of the federal government.
5: And
8: there may the well be government. and probably are going to be other remedies, but not a 14th Amendment remedy. Yeah. Absolutely. So the answer
3: is yes. Okay.
5: AND THAT IS BECAUSE OF THE EXISTENCE OF OTHER AVENUES OF REDRESS?
8: NOT SOLELY. Um, that, THAT I THINK IS A FACTOR. IT'S BECAUSE OF, AGAIN, THIS COURT'S RECOGNITION IN OTHER CONTEXT THAT PUBLIC EMPLOYEES SIMPLY ARE NOT ON THE SAME FOOTING AS PRIVATE CITIZENS GENERALLY WITH REGARD TO THEIR EMPLOYERS AND THAT FEDERAL COURT IS SIMPLY NOT THE APPROPRIATE forum IN WHICH TO REVIEW THE DAY-TO-DAY DECISION-MAKING OF, of PUBLIC EMPLOYERS. AND BECAUSE OF RECOGNITION OF THE INHERENTLY SUBJECTIVE NATURE OF PUBLIC EMPLOYMENT
3: yeah, that YOUR
9: COMMENT ON uh, YOUR OPPONENT'S uh, STATEMENT THAT THIS REALLY HAS NOT uh, GENERATED AN AWFUL LOT OF LITIGATION, DO YOU THINK HE'S RIGHT OR WRONG ON THAT? I,
8: I, I THINK SO FAR AS ANYONE CAN DETERMINE, HE'S RIGHT TO DATE. OBVIOUSLY, WE HAVE SOME REAL CONCERN THAT IF THIS COURT WERE TO SAY THAT THERE WERE SUCH A CAUSE OF ACTION, THAT THINGS MIGHT CHANGE. Beyond that, I think the relatively few number of cases, and in particular the very, very small to date number of successful cases, is an argument against extending class of one equal protection analysis into this context because there will be an adverse effect on public employer discretion if the court were to extend the analysis. Public employers would have to worry about what happened in this case, that their decisions are are subject to later second-guessing in in Federal court. It may well chill the exercise of public employer discretion. And I think the most common complaint about public employer discretion is that it's underutilized, not overutilized, and there would be a real danger that for the price of a very few successful cases, you would chill the exercise of public employer discretion. So, we actually think that, that that point is an argument against the extension, not for it. But I would agree
4: that we can't point to any enormous flood of cases to date. In Oregon, is it, would there be a civil service remedy available to someone in this situation? There would be admittedly very limited remedies
8: under the civil service laws, per se. The decision about whether to um, advance her as a manager of who to pick as a manager was one really solely within the employer's discretion. With respect to the the decisions about the layoff and the bumping into someone else's position, she had essentially what were procedural remedies um, under her collective bargaining agreement, which, which the union would have had to assert on her behalf if the union had failed to do so, and she had thought the union erred in doing so she could have brought an action against them she did have a common law state law claim in this case which she brought uh, one for intentional interference with her employment relationship which she was successful in um, both in the district court and which we did not challenge in the ninth circuit so that that state law claim is certainly still a viable claim but as as far as
2: the federal law claim is concerned you you, you'd urge us to come out the same way even if uh, this case came up before the administrative Procedure Act was passed, right?
8: Yes, yes, we would.
4: Although, again, that provides yet a, yet an additional remedy to the procedure. Administrative Procedure Act doesn't apply to state to state procedures. It's a federal act. Government right. federal agencies. Oh, it, as,
2: as to federal employment, you you'd, you'd yeah. say the same, yes. and you'd say the same if there were no state remedies for. Uh, yes. uh, employment discrimination by the state.
8: Yes, we would.
2: Because the state has a right to employ at will.
8: Yes, subject to whatever limitations there may be in other affirmative sources of law such as a collective bargaining agreement or or some other state or federal statutory remedy.
0: Well, yes. What exactly is the analytic basis of that that I mean, do you think the you don't think the equal protection clause applies at all to this situation where it's just a class of one? Or do you think that the clause is always, uh, the claim of violation under the clause is always rebutted automatically? What is the? Um,
8: the, former, the former within the context of public employment. We certainly, again, are not not taking issue but with what, public.
5: What authority do you have for us to uh, parse different governmental actions and to say some are subject to the Equal Protection Clause and some are not?
8: Well, and again, I don't know.
5: Than the convenience uh, of of the government, it might be more efficient for the government. You want us to say that the government can act arbitrarily with respect to employees?
8: And again, I don't know that um, the Federal Government discusses uh, peremptory challenges, and and I'll leave that to them. But again, um, stepping outside the 14th Amendment context for a moment, this Court certainly, and, and without explicit textual support, has recognized differences, for example, in the First Amendment rights of public employees vis-a-vis? Oh, but that's
0: very different, because the, those cases say that those individuals have no First Amendment rights. In other words, in the public employee context, talking about their official obligations, there is no First Amendment right to do that. I think it's quite a different situation to say there's no equal protection right in government employment.
8: But, but maybe I should say again, um, Your Honor, I think that, what we're asking for in this case is the same sort of line-drawing, outside-textual, textual line-drawing that this Court has done in other contexts, such, such as the First Amendment context, where it has said that, that government simply can't impose obligations, restrictions on its uh, public employees that it could not on citizens generally. And Why, that, why
2: can't you simply say that uh, they're not being denied equal protection of the law uh, the law that applies to her and to everybody else employed by the government is that the employment is at will. And, uh, That's certainly an equal protection. She she could be fired at will and everybody else can be fired at will. Agree. Uh, isn't that an equal protection of the law? Yes, I
4: agree. This wasn't, this wasn't employment at will, right? Not precisely, but... The decision whether or not to promote effectively might
8: as well have been at will in the sense that this that was a decision subject solely to the discretion of the employer. Um, So in in a sense, it's it's analogous. I wouldn't say that it is precisely at will with respect to any of these decisions. And again, because she had only limited rights under the collective bargaining agreement, outside of those limited rights, the employer really had full discretion as to what decision it would make. So again, I think there's an analogy to at will.
9: What, what proportion of your workforce is really hired at, uh, at will? Aren't they all got some kind of protections under your, your statutes? And your-
8: um, uh, as a matter of fact, none of the Assistant Attorneys General, including me, have, have any protection. Most, most State employees have some kind of, of collective — I'm arguing against myself in this case um, — most, most employees in the State of Oregon have some kind of, of collective bargaining — um, protection Stature? so at will is the exception, not the rule don't you
9: have some kind of civil service system too you...
8: not not precisely it's it 's much more a matter of of collective bargaining uh but it it amounts to much the same thing yeah. in in the end
9: so the that people who are employed at will are the exception rather than the rule
8: absolutely no and I would readily concede that fact. If the court gets to the second part of the of the case and the question becomes what sort of test, assuming that the court finds a class of one analysis should apply in this context, and the question becomes what 's the test really all the state is asking for here is an application of a, of a customary rational basis test in which if any conceivable rational basis can be offered by the government, the case should be in an end that that position was raised below by the State defendants, who raised the point both in their summary judgment motion and in their trial memo, and urged the District Court to take this case away from the jury on that basis, and the District Court refused to do so. What
6: what do you say to um, to the argument that the conceivable basis test is appropriate when we're judging legislation because we don't know what goes through the minds of individual legislators, whereas these kinds of decisions, employment decisions, Are in fact very specific state of mind kind of decisions, and therefore the equal protection standard ought to take that into consideration and look to the specific reasons.
8: I I think the difference is not that great. I I think, admittedly, the actual rationale is is harder to to discern in legislative cases, in part because you have so many decision makers. But here, for example, is is similar because the, the decision makers might have had a number and probably did have a number. Of elements in mind, from, from dislike to a preference for a certain kind of background.
0: Thank, Thank you. you, Ms. Metcalf.
10: Ms. Black. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, there are two types of class of one claims that should not be recognized in the public employment context. The first is a claim of residual ill will or bad motive simpliciter, and the second is a simple demand for a rational basis for an adverse personnel decision. The problem with those claims is that they would constitutionalize routine employee grievances and impose a for-cause requirement (coughs) on public employers notwithstanding the long tradition of at-will public employment.
5: And the reason that we didn't say that same thing in OLIC is because in the taxation area or the easement area, we simply don't have the great number of cases, and also because animus is more easily established?
10: It's similar. In the regulatory context, a personality conflict is not a legitimate basis for adversely treating a citizen. But a personality conflict between a supervisor and a subordinate is generally, if not always, a legitimate basis for adversely treating an employee. I
3: wondered if I was right, you know, but I I thought that uh, maybe looking back that there's something about zoning and taxation where it normally is a legislative rulemaking activity. And that perhaps you would apply all these things that you're talking about where what the, even if it is employment, where what the employer is doing or anyone else is doing is creating rules, is is classifying, and not a made-up classification like you put me and one other fired person, in the fired person category. I don't mean that. Well, I, I mean like taxation and, and zoning and legislation. Is there anything to that?
10: There is some, some support in the case law, but what I think your concurring opinion was trying to do was help, uh, local and state governments. And it's one thing to say the mayor denied my building permit and I'm going to make the employee allege animus and that might be difficult to do. But for the, someone in the, in the, the mayor's staff, it's not that difficult to allege animus on the part of your supervisor. Employment frictions are inherent in the workplace and perceptions of unfair treatment. Uh, readily arise by uh, an employee who thinks he or she was unfairly treated.
0: Well, I agree with all that, but the, so the Equal Protection Clause doesn't apply?
10: Sure, it applies. It just doesn't give you a right to collect what this plaintiff did punitive and compensatory damages based on residual ill will. She ran an equal protection claim on race, gender, national origin, sex. She had a statutory claim. For opposing unlawful conduct under Title VII, the jury rejected all that and imposed punitive damages. And it went to the jury. A a legal question that has always been decided by this court and court about whether there was a rational basis or whether instead it was solely based on vindictive, arbitrary, malicious reasons went to the jury. And there was no allegation of any think The Equal
0: Protection Clause applies. Yes. But in every case of public employment, what? It doesn't.
10: It doesn't. No, if you have a uh, membership and an identifiable group classification, as opposed to purely subjective and individualized criteria, here her class was: I was a thorn in my supervisor's side. That's not a class. And if it is a class, you would lose because you would always have a. The equal protection
0: clause doesn't talk about classes. It talks about any person.
10: That's correct, and and. In the First Amendment, that's, that's a different amendment, but in the 14th Amendment, there's the Batson context. It's just, just like in the Batson context, the high cost of litigating every single claim to try to ferret out what would truly be an irrational decision is not worth the cost when there's such an overwhelming likelihood that a truly irrational decision would already be prohibited by some other contract or statutory source. He doesn't
2: talk about equal protection, actually. He talks about equal protection of the law. And if if the law in the government employment context is that you can be uh, dismissed at will or for a a number of reasons, um, so long as everybody's uh, subject to that same law, there would seem to be no discrimination in the law.
10: Well, I, we're not relying on the text of the. Oh, don't rely
2: on the text <laughs> <laughs> What
10: What we're relying on is two principles, and there's just a long-standing principle that the Constitution is not the appropriate form to resolve routine employment uh, disputes. but there's also. You, Ms. Black,
4: with the with the two cases that I raised, Ms. medcalf that okay. is the bribe case and the scapegoat case. They're out too under if, if public employment is taken out from this class of one, those two cases would go as well.
10: Right. Well, one is criminal conduct. And on the scapegoat case, I actually don't think that's such a bad thing. One, I mean, one can recharacterize scapegoating as public accountability. And their side would allow Federal courts and State courts to second-guess Uh, local employment's response to a public crisis. So if there's a school board or some tragic accident in the city and a group of employees are fired, their side would give a constitutional claim for punitive and, and compensatory damages based on a finding of ill will. And although the other side comes up here and tells a story about traditional rational basis, in this case it was submitted to the jury about whether there was a rational basis or whether whatever articulated basis was a mere pretext. It was treated basically like a sex or gender, uh, a race claim, and not a rational basis claim. It should have never gone to the jury. It's not a fact question uh, whether there's a rational basis.
9: Can we can we If you have rejection? a mixed motive case, both ill will and uh, a, a some reason she also was late to work, you would win that case. Well, if you have one good reason and one bad reason, the bad reason doesn't trump the good reason.
10: That's right. In a mixed mode of constitutional case involving a fundamental right, it's, it's a fact question for the jury. In a rational basis case, it would be a question for the court whether there's a conceivable rational basis. But
5: a public employee uh, applies for a 30-foot easement that he's entitled to and doesn't receive it, and the mayor says, and by the way, I don't like you, so you're fired. A, you don't get the easement. B, you're fired. Why, why, is the, why do we treat the cases differently other than uh, the floodgate argument, et cetera.
10: Well, if the uh, mayor doesn't give the employee, uh, the employee a grievance, in her capacity as a citizen, she has a suit under Olek, but in her termination c- claim, she, uh, unless she can allege uh, membership in an identifiable class, she doesn't have an equal protection right to be free from just pure arbitrariness that's That, that
5: states your conclusion. I want to know why that is.
10: Why? Because per- personality conflicts have no role in the regulatory context, and they- generally if not always are the legitimate basis for a personnel decision it's this that the uh They say this example of, well, an employer doesn't like you, that's sufficient. But the other side never tells you how far they would take that. Is it because the conflict arose in the workplace? Is it because it arose from their neighborhood? Is it because it arose from the high school debate team or law review or the cheerleading squad and that's why the person wasn't hired? And we would have courts having to to go judge by judge or court by court and in their case, jury by jury for these kinds of decisions. And these shouldn't be constitutional cases. These are more appropriately resolved under merit service protection laws and collective bargaining agreements.
6: Would it it meet your concern if we held, number one, yes, there may be a class of one claim in the public employment context, but uh, any reason uh, that would be a a lawful reason for discharge under the at-will rule uh, is a, uh, a, a, a reason that would satisfy the test, uh, and therefore it would be the real outlier that would ever get to the jury.
10: Well, in the at-will context, if an, if an employer says you're fired and gives no reason, That's legitimate. But in in their case, at least by the time a lawyer is hired and the case goes to court, the State has to articulate a basis that could be second-guessed. If you you are going to apply class of one and write a very broad opinion saying almost anything goes in the employment context, that's certainly preferable than having this go to juries based on pretext and bad motive, which is what happened in this case. But I still think it would impose a a for-cause requirement that's inconsistent with your due process cases, which presuppose that the personnel entitlement must spring from some place other than the Constitution. Well,
6: let me, let me ask you this. I mean, I, I wasn't trying a trick question, but I, I — I, I, let, me, let me be explicit about this. If we adopted the rule that said anything that goes uh, under the at will rule goes under equal protection class of one, would there be anything left? No. Okay. Yeah. So the, the, the reason is if we adopted that rule, you'd win across the board?
10: Yes. Yes. Unless you leave, right, there's no point. I mean, the at-will rule is that no reason be given or it could be a bad reason. And um, if there's any concern about the line drawing, I would urge you just to look at the the verdict form in this case. All that was submitted to the jury after there was the rejection of the national origin, the gender, the race, the color, the retaliation for reporting sexual harassment was just a simple case of without any rational basis and solely for arbitrary, vindictive, and malicious reasons.
5: So we should cite there's no constitutional right to be a policeman. We can revive that.
10: Well, no. I mean, there are lots of constitutional limits on public employment. What we're talking about is where you've reduced at will to to a null set and there's any claim for arbitrary conduct. I mean, we would allow, under our theory, any claim that is not just a residual ill will or bad motive, a State's a valid equal protection case. And there's, um, I mean, many, many statutory protections as well.
1: Thank you, Ms. Black. Mr. Conteo, four minutes remaining. The Ninth Circuit in this case, Your Honors, cut out all claims, conceivable or otherwise, and that is contrary to the text of the Equal Protection Clause in this Court's precedent. Do
6: you agree with me that if we adopted a rule that says anything that goes for at-will employment goes for one-person clause equal protection, that that, in effect, would eliminate any cause of action?
1: It would, Justice suitor under the formal rule that is no reason alone is sufficient. Uh, that, of course, as a practical matter, is not the way at-will works anymore because of the panoply of rules, Title VII and otherwise, that force employers to articulate rationales when they terminate at-will employees. So as a practical matter, the no reason firing doesn't exist anymore because those employees, those at-will employees who are going to sue are going to sue anyway.
7: You just keep it, stressing the, the text of the Equal Protection Clause. Don't you think it's rather late in the day to be arguing that the Equal Protection Clause should be read with that kind of literalness?
1: Uh, they don't. Uh, that is, that this court has consistently held that the text of the equal protection clause encompasses personal claims. Well, it uh,
7: c- talks about laws, but it, it extends to situations where what's being the unequal treatment is not stemming from the law, but from executive or administrative action. That's, it?
1: that's quite right, Justice And It has since 1879. This court has and said. Any
7: other examples? Are there not of situations where it's been held to apply that might not fall within the literal language of the clause?
1: Uh, I'm I'm not sure I got that. I'm sorry.
7: You think it applies, that in all other respects it's read literally?
1: Uh, I'm not sure if in all other respects it is, but with respect to the relevant questions here, that is, does the clause apply to individual agency actions? This Court has held so in 1879 in Missouri versus Lewis and has held so consistently ever since. Uh, So in this case, the government put forth one rationale which was an objective one, wheat, and disclaimed all the others, the subjective ones. And we do think that those subjective rationales, employment is different and will almost always be a rational basis. In this case, uh, they disclaimed all those other ones. So uh, here, the government is using its power, its raw power, purely for its own personal ends, uh, and that is contrary to the whole notion of why employment should be different, which is so what government is, efficiency.
0: What is your answer to their uh, Batson analysis?
1: That it, Batson, I think, supports exactly what we're saying, which is this Court has said we don't review on rational basis actions uh, by a prosecutor that are motivated, strikes that are motivated by the trial, that are, that are, that have, that are for uh, a good trial. But if the rationale of the prosecutor is, I don't like the disabled person, or I don't like oh, — but, th- but you're adding the class aspect. I mean, if the rationale of the
0: prosecutor is, I don't like this person — Under Batson, uh, you don't get to bring an equal protection challenge to that. I
1: I don't quite think that uh, this Court's confronted that specific issue about uh, whether it's an individual class of one juror case. But the language of Batson says that we don't — that this Court won't review on rational basis a claim when it's related to the Government's motivation there to have a fair trial, a good trial. I thought you don't —
4: if you have a peremptory challenge, it means that you can't challenge on any any basis other than the group uh, the the groups that Batson has recognized. But you you said you could challenge a peremptory the exercise of peremptory challenge if it's unrelated to the selection of an impartial jury. Well I thought that a peremptory outside of the class uh, cases is Matter
1: of the prosecutor
4: or the defense attorney don't like this
1: juror. Joseph Ginsburg, the language in Batson and J.E.B. was qualified by saying so long as it was related to the task at hand. And the Seventh Circuit and indeed the D.C. Circuit last year referred to that language and talked about an exemption if the prosecutor's motive was personal, as it is in this case. Has the there employed- ever
4: been a challenge to the exercise of peremptory challenge on the ground? That the challenge was unrelated to the selection of an impartial jury.
1: In the Seventh Circuit decision, the court said that this would state a cause of action that was uh, after this court's decision in JEB. Yes.
0: Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.